at the end of the Majim and Nikaya to finish. But also there were some suttas at the beginning which I never covered. We started someplace about sutta number seven. So then I was thinking to do sutta number four, which is an account of the enlightenment of the Buddha. And then somebody suggested that <laughs> if I was going to take that sutta, I should also do several other suttas which deal with the enlightenment of the Buddha. So now we'll deal with three consecutive suttas, which gives an account of his enlightenment. And these accounts highlight the enlightenment from different angles. So in this way we get a multi-perspective view of the Buddha's enlightenment. And we'll start with Sutta number 26, which I actually already covered in this class, but it was the first Sutta <laughs> I did, which was in March of 1990, almost 10 years ago. So I think many people here now were not present at that time. I wonder who was present when we started. One, two, three, four. Four people. And Mr. Talwata was present, actually. Mr. and Mrs. Talwata. Okay, so since about 90% of the people are new, we might as well cover Sutta number 26 again. Okay, this is Sutta called the Arya Pariyesana Sutta, the Noble Search. Okay, I'll just summarize the background to the Sutta. Okay, at the beginning of the Sutta, the, a number of monks come to the Venerable Ananda and they say to him that it's been a long time since we've heard a discourse from the Blessed One. Okay, so a number of monks come to the Venerable Ananda and say that it's been a long time since we heard a discourse on the Dhamma from the Blessed One. And then Venerable Ananda tells them if that you want to hear a discourse from the Master, then you should go to the hermitage that was established by a Brahmin named Ramaka. And maybe you will get to hear a discourse from the Buddha then. Okay, so during the day, the Buddha and Venerable Ananda go to, from Sabati, they go to a monastery called the Eastern Park, and they spend a day there. Then in the evening, the Buddha takes Ananda to the bathing place, and they take a bath. Then after the bath, Venerable Ananda suggests to the Buddha that they should go to this hermitage of the Brahmin, because Ananda knows that he's arranged for those monks to stay there, and he wants to lead the Buddha there so that they will get to hear a discourse from the Buddha. Okay, so then Ananda, together with the Buddha, go to the Brahmin's hermitage, and as they approach, the monks are sitting inside the hermitage discussing the Dhamma, and the Buddha, as usual, he waits outside until there is a pause in their discussion, then he coughs and knocks and the bhikkhus open the door for him. Then the Buddha sits down 
and he asks the monk what they were discussing and the monks say that they were holding a discussion on the Dhamma which was based upon or concerned with the Blessed One himself. Then the Buddha commends them and he says these are famous words that it's good for you who have gone forth into homelessness to sit together and hold a discussion on the Dhamma. When you meet together, you should do one of either two things. Either hold a discussion on the Dhamma, Dhamma Sankatya, or else maintain noble silence. In other words, don't engage in just frivolous chatter, either speak on the Dhamma, or else keep silent. <laughs> okay, now the Buddha begins the actual topic or subject of his discourse. These, the subject or starting point, are the two kinds of search. The Pali word is Pariyesa. This is what gives the title to the discourse. Pariyesana is like investigation, quest, seeking. And these two types of search are the ignoble quest, anarya pariyesana, and the noble quest, arya pariyesana. Okay. And as usual, the Buddha, when he has a contrast between something bad or unwholesome, something good or wholesome, he begins by explaining the bad side first. So he says, what is the ignoble search? Here, someone who is himself subject to birth seeks what is also subject to birth. Someone who is subject himself to aging seeks what is subject to aging. Someone subject to sickness seeks what is also subject to sickness. Himself subject to death seeks what is also subject to death. Himself subject to sorrow, he seeks what is subject to sorrow. Himself subject to defilement, he seeks what is also subject to defilement. Okay, what are the things that are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Here, the glorious, all the familiar, <laughs> familiar aspects of everyday life, aspects that were familiar in his own time. Most of them are familiar today. Wife and children, male, female slaves, maybe nowadays not so familiar. Goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares. We would have to update this to make it fit in with today's time. Cars, stereo sets, <laughs> tape recorders. I'm still in the 1960s, 1970s. Video players, <laughs> um, computers. What is another thing? I would say it is the whole virtual reality which has come to us 
in which uh, people think statics yeah. are already easy, easy to live with that and we can master it. Okay, gold and silver are subject to defilement nowadays with say bank accounts, accumulations of stocks and bonds, all of this subject to birth, aging, sickness and death. There's a little variation in the expositions and some of these things like gold and silver are not subject to sorrow, to sickness, but they're all subject to birth, aging, death and defilement. Even gold are subject to corruption, so they are included in defilement. Okay, now we come to the noble servant. Here, someone being himself subject to birth understands the danger in what is subject to birth and seeks the unborn supreme security from bondage, nibbana, nirvana. Similarly, being himself subject to aging, to sickness, subject to death, subject to sorrow, subject to defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to defilement, he seeks the undefiled supreme security from bondage, nirvana. This is the noble search. It sort of marks the transition from the ignoble search to the noble search is this phrase having seen the danger Adinavan Bisa the word Adinava has a number of nuances danger misery you could say inadequacy is good unsatisfactoriness wretchedness And this word often comes in the context of a triad, a set of three terms. We have, we to examine things, the Buddha often examines them from these three angles. First there is the asada, that means the satisfaction, enjoyment or gratification. This is the aspect of things which keeps us in bondage and in ignorance. The satisfaction is the pleasure and enjoyment that we uh, extract from our experience. And so all of the things that the Buddha has enumerated wife and children. I should also add for women it would be <laughs> husband and children. <laughs> and now we don't have goats and sheep so often, but okay, cars, television sets, tape recorders, CD players, they all give us pleasure and enjoyment. Gold and silver, bank accounts, stocks, through this we enjoy, we obtain the means of... And because we 
extract enjoyment from these things, as long as we are living in delusion, then we live in a state of complacency. That is, we are blind to the danger and we just live flowing along with the stream of becoming. Bhava Sotanu Sari. We go along with the stream of becoming, not aware of any alternative. Then the process of awakening the of the unsatisfactoriness or danger in all of these objects of worldly enjoyment. And this perception of danger can arise in various ways, but the most maybe decisive aspect is the perception or say discovery, realization of the impermanence of all mundane, all worldly enjoyment, or realizing that all mundane enjoyments fail to give any kind of permanent, lasting satisfaction, that they cannot give true peace and one also sees that the more one becomes attached to these objects of worldly enjoyment, the more one pursues them, the more one makes oneself vulnerable to suffering. And therefore the perception of this danger has a kind of shocking effect on the mind. It shatters the ordinary mood of worldly complacency. And there's a special word for that shocking effect. What is that word? Burning of the Tava called Sambhaga. Exactly. Sambhaga. The main part of this word, Vega, has the sense of a current or a wave and some that sort of strengthens it. So this is like a shock wave that goes through the mind when one discovers the undependable nature of worldly existence. And when this shock of recognition comes, then it has the effect on the one hand of breaking up this cloud of worldly complacency in which we usually live, dispelling this cloud of worldly complacency, so that all of the enjoyments of the world, even immeasurable wealth, power, position, no longer have any attractive, no longer exercise any attraction. We take the Bodhisattva, same example of this. He comes from extremely wealthy family. According to the traditional legend, he was a prince destined to be the king. Though in actuality, <laughs> the Sakya land was not a kingdom but a republic. But he was okay enough. 
high position family, a very powerful family, the ruling family of this republic. He had beautiful wife, three palaces, all the heart's desires can be met. But when he saw into the impermanence, the wretched nature of sensual enjoyments, then all of this position, power, promise, lost its grip on his mind, and he wanted to go forth into homelessness. Now getting a little ahead of the story. <coughs> Here the Buddha is talking just of someone, not yet of himself. But when this person has understood the danger in everything that is subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death, then he is ready to relinquish all these worldly enjoyments and to seek something which is utterly beyond the world. This is what the Buddha indicates by this phrase. He seeks the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, um, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme <coughs> security from bondage, Nibbana. That is the noble search. And I think also it's significant, this is just something I was reflecting on this morning, that a thought like this should occur to someone in the 5th century B.C., which seems to be something of a turning point in human history, since not only in India, not only within the early Buddhist community, but throughout India as a whole, and even in other parts of the world, in ancient Greece, in China, perhaps in Palestine, that kind of new wave of religious thought and philosophical thought was arising for the first time in human history. That's why historians give a particular name to this period. They call it the Axial Age, since it was an age in which human thought was entering a completely new period, completely new phase, and human thought was moving in a direction which it had not moved in prior to perhaps the 7th or 8th century BC. And the interesting question comes up, why did human thought branch off into this new direction of sort of radical philosophical and religious speculation, investigation, contemplation at this particular time in history in so many different parts of the world developing almost in complete independence of each other. Not that there was influence from one to another, but independently this was happening. I think this is just my own conjecture as to where the answer lies. Before this period, civilizations were building up and developing. And the individual at that time was very almost completely immersed in his or her 
role within society that the individual was completely the life was completely subordinated to the social task to the duties the obligations of society generally societies at this time were either had a monarchical form of organization in some cases in india republican forms of organization but the individual did not count for very much himself but the individual's task in life was to fulfill the duties that were incumbent on him by virtue of his social position and so people did not yet have a very clear distinct self-conscious sense of their personal identity and so the facts of old age sickness death of course they were always <laughs> regarded as sorrowful as undesirable and people would dream of different types of individual of immortality but the full capacity for deep reflection philosophical thought depended upon societies reaching a certain level of affluence where individuals were freed from the obligation to subordinate themselves to the duties that were incumbent upon them by virtue of their social role i think the degree of affluence first of all it freed individuals from the round of ordinary social obligations and also perhaps it enabled them to see the once civilizations reach a certain degree of stability power and wealth it enabled them to see the unsatisfactoriness in that level of affluence and stability okay so now the buddha has spoken now he's been speaking in general terms about somebody who sees the danger in these things and then goes off on the noble quest and i think at that time the buddha's time this noble quest was being undertaken by many people even perhaps a century earlier we see instances of this in the upanishads most one of the most ancient scriptures of the brahminic tradition where people were beginning to investigate the way to immortality the way out of the darkness of ignorance the way to the light of eternal wisdom <laughs> the way to the immortal but they are now having spoken in general terms the buddha now speaks about himself and speaks about his how he himself embarked on that quest for enlightenment and he does so first using exactly the same passage he says that before my enlightenment while i was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva i too being subject to birth and so on aging sickness and death i too saw the danger in these things and decided that i would go forth and seek the birthless ageless deathless nibbana then he says 
while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessing of youth, according to the Buddhist tradition, actually confirmed also by the a birth in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, he was 29 years old. <laughs> he says, in the prime of life, though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and went forth from the home life into homelessness. These are almost the exact same words that occur in the suttas over and over to describe many other young men who go forth into homelessness. And now here sometimes people try to argue, they say that since the Buddha refers to my mother and father, this must mean that his actual mother, Queen Mahadevi, did not pass away when he was seven days old, but must have been living at the time that he went forth. But I don't think that there is a real contradiction here. Here I think speaking of mother and father, he could be referring to Maha Pajapati Gautami, who was like his adopted, his foster mother. And also some say that the fact that they are described as weeping with tearful faces, this means that he didn't sneak out of the palace in the middle of the night. But <laughs> again, I don't think that there need be a contradiction since it's possible that he could have spoken to his parents earlier when he wanted to go forth and told them that he had decided to become an ascetic and then they argued against him and when he seemed to be very set in that decision then they might have started weeping and crying and pleading with him not to go. And then for that reason, he would have had to leave in the middle of the night. Also some, I've heard some scholars argue that since the passage here doesn't mention anything about his wife and child, therefore he was not married and didn't have any children <laughs> at the time. But there are other passages which speak about the mother of Rahula and about Rahula the son of the Buddha. So that shows that he did have a wife and a child. Okay, now the Buddha says that now he goes into the specifics of his quest for enlightenment, into his personal story. He says that when he had gone forth in search of what is wholesome, the expression used here is King Kusala Gavesi, seeking what is the good, what is the highest value, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace. I went to Alara Kalama and said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to lead the holy life, the brahmacharya, in this dhamma and discipline. Here the text uses the expression dhamma vinya, the same two terms which the Buddha used to describe his own teaching, dhamma as doctrine, 
Vinaya as discipline. So it seems that at that time, many of the existing communities of ascetics and spiritual seekers, they would have a teaching which had two aspects. One aspect was a philosophical doctrine. The other aspect was a vinaya, not in the sense of code of rules, monks' rules, but in the broader sense of a system of spiritual practice or training, kind of contemplative training, which was rooted in the doctrine. According to the commentaries, when the Bodhisattva left the Sakyan Republic, when he left Kapilavatu, he headed south and went to Magadha. Magadha is currently Bihar, and in the capital of Bihar was Rajagaha, present-day Rajgir, and there would have been huge tracts of forest around Rajgir, and it was in these tracts of forest that there would have been many communities of spiritual seekers under the guidance of a guru or spiritual master. And so the Bodhisattva, probably when he arrived in Rajgir, he would have gone to some of the ashrams there and would have been asked who are the truly accomplished meditation masters in this area. And they would have given his the companions would have given him some names, addresses, <laughs> and one of these names would have been Alara Kalama. And so the Bodhisattva went to him and told him that he wanted to train under him. Alara Kalama would have seen the noble bearing of the Bodhisattva had the marks of physical excellence. I would have been very impressed by, he would have had a very graceful manner since he was brought up as an aristocrat. And he might have even heard the report that the prince of the Sakin clan has left the home life to become an ascetic. And he would have realized that this was the prince right in front of him. So Alara Kalama invited this new ascetic to stay with him and said that this Dhamma is such that a wise person can enter it and dwell in it very quickly through his own direct knowledge. Okay, so the Bodhisattva says that he very quickly learned that Dhamma and he was able to master it as far as lip reciting goes and as far as recitation of the teaching went. Unfortunately, the texts do not give us any account of what Alara Kalama actually taught, so we can't be certain what his teaching was. Though some sort of scholars speculate that it might have been a very early form of what is called Sankhya system of philosophy. Sankhya was the system of Indian philosophy which formed the foundation some centuries later for the yoga system of Patanjali. 
who formulated the yoga system and his yoga sutras. Okay, so after mastering Alara's teaching verbally, learning his doctrine, the Bodhisattva wasn't satisfied with this. And he thought that it's not through mere faith that Alara Kalama speaks the way he does about this doctrine, but he must have realized this Dhamma for himself. So then the Bodhisattva goes to him and says, Friend Kalama, how do you speak of this doctrine to your own realization? What is the way, the path, the practice for attaining to this Dhamma? Then the text says, Alara Kalama declared the base of nothingness. This is a little obscure as it stands, but the Pali expression here is the Akinchanyayatana. And within the Buddha's own system of meditation, the Akinchanyayatana is the third of the four formless attainments, and it's the eighth stage, I'm sorry, it's the seventh stage in the eighth samapati, or seven stages of, or eight stages of concentration. First we have the four jhanas, meditative absorptions, then there is the base of the of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of nothingness. Then beyond the base of nothingness, there's another stage called the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Okay, so according to the text, Alara Kalama taught the Bodhisattva how to attain the base of nothingness. Again, I have to say it's unfortunate that <laughs> we don't have an account here of the specific instructions that Alara Kalama would have given to the Bodhisattva. So that would have been extremely helpful for <laughs> um, understanding the whole history of the formation of Buddha's thought and also for seeing the place of Buddhism against the wider background of Indian spirituality. So we just have to go by what the text says without having that very valuable information. Okay, so upon learning this method from Alara Kalama, Bodhisattva thought that not only Alara Kalama has faith, energy, mindful concentration, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, I too have these qualities. So let me try to realize that same Dhamma that Alara Kalama has realized. So then the Bodhisattva undertook that practice and very quickly very quickly he attained to the base of nothingness. So then he went to Alara Kalama and reported this to him and Alara Kalama must have been quite a noble-minded man, not like a petty, ambitious, avaricious guru who wants to control the company himself. Since when the Bodhisattva reported his attainment 
Kalara Kalama didn't become angry or resentful, but instead he had mudita or altruistic joy, and he expressed anumodana. He expressed his delight and joy that the Bodhisattva could make such rapid progress. He says, it's wonderful, it's marvelous that we have such a venerable one like you in our community. All the other disciples must have been practicing very hard for a long time, but progressing rather slowly. But the Bodhisattva, he just learned the instructions, went off to meditate, and very quickly reached the base of nothingness. And so Alara said, the Dhamma that you declare, that is the Dhamma that I have reached. And the Dhamma that I have reached, that is the Dhamma that you declare. You know the Dhamma that I know, I know the Dhamma that you know, as I am, so are you, as you are, so am I. Then Alara Kalama appointed, was ready to appoint the Bodhisattva to be his co-teacher. He said, come friend, let us now lead this community together. He was ready to put him right up in the teacher's seat along with him. But the Bodhisattva had other ideas. Somehow he would have been aware that this state, the base of nothingness, which Alara would have thought, this is the ultimate, this is the supreme, this is final liberation. But the Bodhisattva, how we don't, we're not shown or explained how the Bodhisattva moved, but somehow he realized that this was not the final goal not yet the ultimate. And he thought to himself, he considered this Dhamma, he says, even though my teacher, Alara Kalama, placed me, his pupil, on an equal footing with himself and gave him the highest honor, still it occurred to me that this Dhamma, this teaching, does not lead to nibbita, to disenchantment with the world, does not lead to viraga, to true dispassion, to niroda, cessation, to complete peace, upasana, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. But it leads only to hear the Pali expression which means at least only to reappearance or rebirth in the base of nothingness in the realm of nothingness now this I have to explain the meaning of this According to the developed Buddhist cosmology, the different there are many, many different realms of existence, and certain different levels of consciousness 
different states of mind are the causes that lead to rebirth into these realms. So, say, unwholesome states of consciousness lead to rebirth into the lower worlds, the animal realm, the hell realm, and so on. Ordinary, wholesome states of consciousness will lead to rebirth into the human realm. Finer states of wholesome consciousness can lead to rebirth into the deva realms, the heavenly realms. But above the heavenly realms there are even higher realms of existence. These can only be entered through the deeper states of concentration or samadhi. There are realms of existence which are called the Brahma worlds, Brahma look. These have to be entered through the jhanas, the four jhanas. Then above the Brahma worlds, there are formless realms of existence, which are reached through the formless meditative attainment. The meditative attainment of infinite space will lead to rebirth into the base of infinite space. The meditative attainment of infinite consciousness leads to rebirth into the realm of infinite consciousness. And the meditative attainment of nothingness will lead to rebirth into the realm of nothingness. And each of these realms of existence has its own lifespan. Some of them have fixed spans of life. And according to the Buddhist cosmology, the Brahma worlds, which are reached through the jhanas, have extremely long lifespans. Hundreds of kalpas. <laughs> the formless realms are what have thousands of kalpas. The base of infinite space, the realm of infinite space, the lifespan there is 20,000 mahakalpas, great aeons. The base of infinite consciousness, the lifespan is 40,000 aeons. The base of nothingness, the lifespan is 60,000 mahakalpas, great aeons. Now, how long is one kalpa, one aeon? <laughs> we don't have numbers in the text, but the Buddha uses the simile, or several similes. He says it's like we have a mountain which is a hundred yojana or something. A yojana is seven miles. A hundred yojana is high hundred yojanas wide. So that's 700 miles high, 700 miles wide, made of solid granite, and once every hundred years a man comes by with a piece of Benares cloth, strokes it one time. <laughs> I really don't think that, <laughs> I don't quite agree with that simile, because the mountain would never wear away in that case, <laughs> but it's just, it's a rhetorical device for indicating the length of the nail. Another simile, it's a city, seven yojas, 
so many yojanas long, so many yojanas wide, full, seven yojanas high, full of mustard seeds. Then once every hundred years a man comes by and pulls away one mustard seed. <laughs> okay, that is one great aeon. Then 20,000 of these is the base of infinite space, 40,000 base of infinite consciousness, 60,000 uh, yes, 60,000 the base of nothingness. So the Bodhisattva would have seen that by mastering the base of infinite, of base of nothingness, without going further, he would have been reborn in the base, in the realm of nothingness. And he would have lived there in complete, perfect peace, utter serenity of mind for 60,000 great aeons. Then when 60,000 great aeons come, it's much more than <laughs> end of the millennium. <laughs> like an alarm clock goes off, <laughs> you wake up, and then there's Mara standing there with a smile saying, guess what, friend? <laughs> and you say, what? <laughs> he goes, <"Boop." laughs> down you go. Then <laughs> you pass away from the base of nothingness and take a rebirth someplace else, not in the plane of misery, but one could be reborn. One can't go directly from the formless realm to the realm of misery, but one can go from the formless realm to a human rebirth. Then it's back into the midst of all the turmoil and difficulties of human life. If one gets led astray in one's human life, book down to the lower realms. <laughs> so, for this reason, the Buddha would have understood that the attainment of this beautiful, blissful, quiescent, peaceful base of nothingness is not the final stage and the path to enlightenment, the way to nirvana. 60,000 Mahakalpas, you think, wow, that's a really long time. But you also have to realize that states of mind work at different speeds in different realms. So you might think that somebody living in that realm is experiencing time as being going really slowly and that it just seems like eternity up there. But that person, that being's experience of time might be going very, very quickly. He might be you know, reborn there, okay, one moment, saying, wow, this is peaceful, this is blissful. And it's not like he is spending 60,000 great aeons there on our time scale, where it seems like you know, an hour goes by so slowly. For him, it might be like, okay, wow, this is wonderful, I've just arrived here, then it seems like maybe three hours later, Mara is saying, 
okay, get moving, you've been here long enough. <laughs> you know, the time I go, then he protests and says, what do you mean, I've just arrived. But Mara says, no you didn't, luck. Check the calendar. And then he looks at the calendar and says, come on man, you're pulling my leg, you're not trying to tell me <laughs> 60,000 credits. <laughs> he says, if you don't believe me, Turn on the BBC news. <laughs> Try to find out Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> it's just like we see these little insects, you know, and we know that they, when you read in the textbook, okay, their lifespan is three hours. <laughs> and for them, you know, for us it seems like nothing, but for them it's like, Okay, they're born. <laughs> it's like they're going through their childhood very slowly. <laughs> then there comes the time of adolescence where they're starting to go out dancing. <laughs> the boy insects are meeting girls, girls are meeting boy insects. They're getting married, <laughs> raising their, getting baby insects, raising their children working their careers, <laughs> growing old, going to getting sick, passing away. And for them it's a full lifespan. <laughs> but we look at it and we say that's only three hours. How can they enjoy a life like that? <laughs> and they look at us and they think, boy, those human beings, those must be the immortal gods. <laughs> so it's all relative. <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes my way of preaching, it doesn't conform to the Sri <laughs> <laughs> Lankan ideal of <laughs> always being very staged and <laughs> Okay, we'll stop now and we'll continue next week. I want to mention that next week we'll be doing some sort of breaking up the sutta and taking part of Sutta number 36. So some of you who here when we did Sutta number 36 maybe still have the printout of that or the photocopy of that. So bring that photocopy as well as this one since we want to compare these two suttas since one amplifies material which is treated very concisely in this Sutta. Yeah. Right with you, yeah. it's not just something else. Yeah. When you're talking to beginning of the security of the Bama, yeah, yeah. all everybody knows that the, the child which is in uh, the child which is in the human being the is child yeah. yeah. Uh, it's seeking pleasures yeah. because it's main reason is to go back to the security
that Buddha yeah. teaching offers to yeah. the security which the charge by me yeah. and then pushes us to enjoy more and more with yeah. hope. Yeah. We find total complete satisfaction in it. I mean, in other words, are you saying that is the security of Nibbana just a kind of sublimation of the yeah. security, the security of, the of the womb? I would say definitely not. I would say that that's, maybe that was a kind of Freud's view of right. Asian religions, of Eastern religions, that it was... Can you explain? I would say that that so-called security uh, one gets by going back to trying to recapture the safety and security of the womb, that's a regressive yes. type of security which comes because life presents too many challenges for the ego personality to cope with. And so one becomes frightened and overwhelmed by these challenges, by these difficulties, and one seeks a security by blinding oneself to the difficulties of life, by running away and by seeking some pre-egoistic -ego security. Whereas the security that the Buddha is pointing to, the security of Nibbana, is, I would say, a trans-egoistic security. In other words, it's a security which can only come through confronting the real nature, the real sufferings and insecurities of existence, and understanding the true nature of existence and by doing so, overcoming all of the factors of the mind, all the deep roots of, of the mind which are responsible for one's bondage and delusions. But there is one, one thing which is sure, yeah. that it's secure. It's secure, yeah. But it's also, it's called, don't forget, it's called security from bondage, anutra, yes. and it's also called incomparable, peerless. Anutra yes, yoga came. But it's secure because it's secure from bondage. Yes. And the Buddha says, what, are, what is bondage? What are the bonds? Okay, karma, the bond of sensual desire, bhava, bhava yoga bondage of attachment to existence, ditti yoga, the bondage of wrong views, abhija yoga, the bondage of ignorance. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, 